You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we interview Maya Tusing, who prior to founding Fairlight, she was the head of BlackRock's Institutional Index Allocation Group, where her team managed over $200 billion across all asset classes, investment styles, and vehicles. Over the last 20 years, she has held senior risk management roles at firms such as BlackRock, Barclays Global Investors, Visa, and GE Capital. Additionally, she has coached hundreds of men and women at all levels of corporate and nonprofit organizations to achieve personal and professional success. On today's show, we talk about has Silicon Valley become risk adverse? How does interest rates impact fundraising for companies in Silicon Valley? What lessons can founders of for-profit and nonprofit companies learn from each other? And what happens when multiple nonprofits collide? This and much more on today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's begin. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Maya, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley podcast. Now, I'm super excited to be here. We're recording live at the Sapient Impact Hub. Maya, I know your background. It's absolutely amazing. You know, I did a lot of research before this interview. I'm very excited. But Mike, you tell our audience a little bit about your career up until this point. Yeah, sure. So let me set some context. So I've worked for approximately 30 years. And of those 30 years, I've worked at seven uh, S&P 500 companies. And something to know for those who are, have worked in very large companies, they are like many countries. They, they have their own culture. They have their own values. They have their own way of doing things. And it really influences how you see the world and frankly, how, what you don't see. And I think when we were talking a little before this podcast, I started thinking about things in my career that really were meaningful. And I was living in Palo Alto, right off university, and I was working in San Francisco. I lived this hermetically sealed life. You know, I had to be in Wall Street hours, in the office, in my seat for meetings with London at a reasonable time. So I was getting up before 5 a.m., taking the first or second Caltrain of the day, get in the train, it's about an hour trip, walk to work, stay in there, maybe go outside to eat, maybe not, because I was I get food delivered, come back, get in the train. And that was my life for many years. But on weekends, you know, I'd get out. I'm an avid runner. And occasionally, I would find myself on El Camino, right? If you know the, the strip right between um, Palo Alto High School tennis courts and the Stanford soccer pitches, there would be these cars there and vans, chock-a-block of stuff. And I'd, I'd go, huh, that's a mystery. What, what are they doing there? And I'd keep going. And I wouldn't question it. I didn't know what they were. And I swear to you, the week that I left corporate America, I realized what those cars were. Those were people living in their cars. And it was so shameful to me that I thought of myself as a very open-minded person, you know, reasonably smart. 
that I would know what that was, particularly with a lot of the the social ills that we have here in California, and particularly in the Bay Area, that that did not occur to me. And I was seeing it almost every weekend as I go running. And so I decided upon myself, you know, I wanted to have a career, my second phase of my career, something that would allow me to see, to be involved in the community, in my community, and try to make impact. That I'm glad for my corporate career, I learned a lot, but this was time. Okay, so right then is when you went, you had this epiphany and you said, okay, I'm going to start helping nonprofits? Or? Well, you know, I have to say it was a more meander. I'm a more meandering type of person for my career. I started working for a small in- investment company. I'd been managing very large portfolios. Like my team, when I was working in the big asset management firms, I, I had a team that managed $200 billion of large foundation money, large pension funds, sovereign wealth funds. And I really wanted to manage money where I could look the person in the eye. So my business partner today and I opened the West Coast office of a small boutique investment firm, and they were managing nonprofit money, small and mid-sized nonprofits. And they had individuals that they managed money for. They were in upstate New York. And it was that nonprofit, that endowment of foundation money that was interesting to us. And that here we knew we could marry our Wall Street experience, that Wall Street rigor, and bring it to small and mid-sized nonprofits that are not getting the high-touch experience that our former employers. So if you're a multi-billion dollar foundation, you're going to get high-touch from BlackRock or State Street. Or, and so we wanted to be able to provide that to you know, the cat shelter where the little old lady donates a couple million. That's hip squeak for an endowment. And so it allows us to give that high touch. Okay. I did like how you referenced animals there. Yeah, I got more if you want. Right there, you went from Fortune, seven Fortune 500 companies. And if you want to mention them at all, just to name drop, you're more than welcome to. <laughs> to some, were fetch- some were Fortune 5 too, but now they're kind of lower. <laughs> no one could guess any of those, let's be honest. Am I allowed to be funny? Oh, you okay. could try. I could try, but not as funny as you. Okay. <laughs> okay, so now managing nonprofits money, but there's this huge gap there. And what I mean by that, that gap is, you know, Fortune, Fortune Fives, nonprofits, there, there's a pretty big span there, and your time here in Silicon Valley. I'm just kind of wondering about what you saw in this time. How did Silicon Valley change it all? Did it become less risk adverse? I mean, I know you're involved with Ostia Angels. Right. Sharon Vosmick was a guest on this show. Yeah, thanks to me. Thanks to you, actually. Thank you for that warm intro. Did things change in Silicon Valley over this time that you were, that you were seeing? I've lived in the Bay Area on and off for, gosh, maybe 20 years, maybe more than that. And the second time I came, I've lived in the peninsula for a long time, but I really didn't get involved in early stage companies and investing until about six years ago when I met Sharon. I brought her in actually to speak about investing in underrepresented entrepreneurs. And she said, you know, come to one of our portfolio company events. And I was blown away that here were such inspiring 
people who were just not getting any venture money. It was just amazing. You know, a woman through personal experience developed a medical device that was filling a gap on treatment for cancer or black entrepreneurs who have experience in social media who are building platforms that had music competitions and docu-series on African culture. I mean, these were cool things that were and cool products and services that generations ago would never have gotten to time of day and really needed an investor who didn't have some kind of bias. And it was Sharon who showed me that Silicon Valley is flying in the face today. The venture is not that meritocracy that we that work ethic and skill will that the money will come. And that, in fact, you know, the whole point, the whole investment model of venture capital was to find that diamond in the rough, that best in class, but that opportunity that nobody ever thought of. Well, today it's who's invested before, you know, is Sequoia invested? Well, if not, I walk, which really is kind of twisted. If you, I'm a public capital markets gal, so I, quote, Buffett, I guess. Um, and, you know, he says, be afraid where others are greedy and be greedy when others are afraid. And so, you know, if you really believe in diversification of portfolios, you should also think about diversifying, you know, where venture goes. And my interest in nonprofit money, it requires that I understand where these underrepresented entrepreneurs are because nonprofits want double bottom line. So for those who are not familiar with that term, wanting financial performance, but also delivering social impact. And so often, you know, we'll have prospects or clients who say, hey, I want, I want to invest in private equity. I want to invest in early stage start, but I want something to, I want to invest in a woman founder. I want to invest in a black founder. I want to invest in, you know, trans founder. And so we've got to have that pipeline and we have to know where these companies are. Are you saying investing in a minority pool is actually diversification in an alternative investment portfolio? You could say that. Remember that founders are people too. And so they are building companies based on their own personal experience. And so you look at a lot of the, just a, a, a woman founder is going to address a niche that reflects her experience. Um, I think of a story I heard of a venture capitalist who had listened to some, it was a pitch day. And um, one of the founders came up with this uh, shoe that was like $500, a woman's shoe. And he's like, I'm passing. Women don't spend $500 on shoes. And so it's things like that. <laughs> that. I mean, I think on the other side, we need more diverse venture capitalists who understand that there is that market for that $500 shoe or, or whatnot, that there are customers to be had in a, a diverse services and, and product landscape. Now, is that kind of the chicken before the egg thing? What's going to come first, the diverse venture capitalists or the diverse entrepreneurs? Well. It's not changed at all. So I don't know. I mean, still 2% of venture is going to women. 
0.5% of venture is going to Black women. And it's probably even less for Latinx. You know, and there are a number of nonprofits or initiatives that are trying to address this. Astia is trying to address it. There are some venture markets that are doing it better. I understand, you know, Sharon will tell you that New York, they're saying, how can we find these underrepresented founders instead of they should find me? They should look the way I think they should. Instead, I need to change my mindset of what a CEO of a company looks. I have to be completely unbiased about what that looks like. So you've had a huge career in the public markets, no correlates, correlation. Big correlation, actually. So for those not familiar, then the Fed chair, Jay Powell, indicated that the Fed would raise rates practically seven times to combat inflation. So you know why the Fed raises rates. It's basically like a splash of cold water on the economy. And the point of that is, and Powell believes this soft landing, so that prices don't go haywire and we end up in a recession. So back to your question about fundraising for early stage stocks. So raising interest rates basically is a killer for speculators. So many, um, you probably know this, but some of your listeners may not know this, but speculators don't just sit on piles of cash. They typically borrow money. And because borrowing money, you have a lot higher returns if you're going to borrow money. You can also lose a lot of money if you invest with borrowed money. Some will be sitting on cash. And so if their borrowing costs go up, then they have to scrutinize their investments across the board. And so an early stage startup is as risky as you can get. So if you have some cash or you have to borrow cash, you're going to look at that more closely. And there might be better opportunities for you to park your money until you see that you know the economy is, is growing and we go through this kind of uncertain times. And maybe it's infrastructure you put your money in. Maybe it's real estate. So there's going to be a I would guess a fair amount of competition among those fundraising for their venture. And if they use debt, that's going to go up too. But the whole reason that we raise rates is so that things don't get like they were in the, in the early 80s and where we have really high prices, but a lot of unemployment. So the hope is, you know, and things look pretty good, you know, Unemployment is uh, really low, almost at record levels. Mask mandates and vaccine um, mandates are easing, but there's still Ukraine and inflation, oil prices still quite high. And who knows about how new variant in, you know, we're seeing in Europe. So it's a pretty uncertain time, I would say, still. <laughs> they're pretty low growth, but let's hope that this period we do have that soft landing. From the big institutional investors, when they're here in all these macro events, all these global events, how much is that weighing on their thoughts for the local, those alternative investments? You mentioned, you know, they're scrutinizing it because cost of borrowing might go up, those things. So they're, they might be more particular, but don't they already have a certain percentage allocated for these more alternative, these more risky, these funding VCs, funding, you know, funds of funds, things like that? 
So I'll talk from an endowment perspective. Now I'll do some kind of definition. So endowment, you probably heard of like a university endowment, like a Stanford endowment, which is like 38 billion dollars. And um, Maya, if you want to drop some names of where you've actually worked, you've been way too modest. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I will. I, I never worked for Stanford, but I'm just using them as an example. So typically, there is a strategic allocation, as you say. And, they, and an endowment is typically a donation from one or lots of very wealthy individuals or families. And this money is supposed to be there for a very long time. So to your point, these geopolitical events, macroeconomic events, fiscal events should not change the calculus. It should not change the allocation because the whole point of asset allocation, strategic asset allocation, even at the big Yale model, as they say for in the endowment world, or even the smaller nonprofits that we're looking that have $10 million, um, it should be the same. Because, and it should be even for your personal retirement. It will have, what are we going to do if you know Putin continues? I'm like, we're not going to do anything. We're going to do the same thing. You don't look at the price of your house every day on Zillow, do you? No. Well, you're not supposed to be looking at and the problem is, you know, the stock market, you can see it on your widget on your phone every day. That's kind of confounding, but it should not, they should keep that kind of allocation consistent. Interesting. And you talked about endowments there, <laughs> nonprofits. I want to go back to you were in the private sector. Now you're helping nonprofits. How come the kind of the management style, the way a business is run for the nonprofit, how come it doesn't, or for the profit, how come it doesn't correlate or spill over into nonprofits? So there's this, I guess, this arrogance of those who come from the private sector once maybe we're sitting on a board and spewing some strategy or, you know, you start working more closely with nonprofits. And I got schooled by a friend of mine who uh, has done capital campaigns in her whole life, she's done fundraising. And she said, you know, you're just so typical. You presume that you can come with your business ideas and that's going to make nonprofits all better. But, you know, you're not the first one to do that. And so, you know, slap on the hand. And it's right. It, it's just like someone running for office, like, oh, I was in business. I could run, you know, government like business. It's, it's very different. It's the lens, really. I mean, there's a lot that um, nonprofits can learn from business and vice versa. And we're getting to that point. And I'll get there. Uh, I'll get there. So when you have kind of profit-seeking motives, you can have some products and services that are good, have bring to the social good. So a nonprofit, a lot of people know the definition of a nonprofit, but they probably don't know why it's a nonprofit. So a nonprofit receives a tax exemption from income federal and state if 100% of their income and their financial resources are to serve the public good. 100%. So no shareholders, no, nonprofit doesn't mean no profit. It means there are no shareholders and no owners that the profit goes back to to them in a dividend. Now, if they they should probably may be in the in the black, 
because, heck, there might be a pandemic or runaway inflation that they have to be prepared for. But that profit needs to go back into to to serve the mission. Now, with profit maximizing, that's exactly the goal is to maximize profit. And so you could see like the steam engine or the light bulb or drones. I heard I, I just read recently there is a, a startup in England that is developing edible drones so that for humanitarian aid, they will drop medical supplies and then you can eat the drone. So these are, you know, profit maximizing, profit maximizing companies that are doing good. But, you know, we have loads of examples of businesses that have led to economic inequality, to environmental devastation and waste. But it's really the lens. I was just reminded of a, an example this week of why a nonprofit cannot uh, use profit maximization as their guiding light. They have to use what their mission is. So I, I was, I'm a commissioner for, on the Commission of Staff of Women for San Mateo County, and we had one of the development officers from Second Harvest Food Bank. They are responsible for distribution of you know, food across San Mateo County and, and Santa Clara. And um, she said, you know, and it's difficult being in food banks because they have two, two things that are, they are influenced. The price of food, which has gone up. You know, we've learned that, you know, Ukraine and, and Russia are one of the top producers of food and wheat and grain in, in the world. So, you know, we're losing supply there. So classic economics. And then fuel prices going up. So they have found that to deliver food, their fuel prices are higher than the food they're delivering. Now, a business would say, eh, heck, we're not going to do, we're not going to deliver food or let's pass on the fuel costs to the customer. You can't do that for a nonprofit. You got to suck it up and you've got to, you've got to monitor that. And because your mission is to, is to solve world hunger or solve the community's hunger. And so that's why it's hard to do that. That being said, a nonprofit does want to maximize impact. So they have to be fiscally responsible. I mean, the reason, one of the reasons Catherine Earhart, my, my co-founder and I got into this was we had in our, we were working for, for BlackRock, if you want to name drop, we were fundraising for a um, small microfinance um, nonprofit. They were funding low-income women who were looking to start their entrepreneurial venture. And so it was microloans and grants. Great organization. We raised about $250,000 of our own money and our colleagues' money. And with the corporate foundation, we hand over those massive checks. And uh, they had a gala. Two weeks later, the nonprofit folded. It was so devastating to us. And it was through poor financial management the nonprofit grew too quickly. In and, two weeks? Well, no. Nah. Well, that's another thing. I mean, that goes to the whole thing about how do does a board as a board of aware of what's going on in the operations. But we didn't think that that should happen ever. So there are fiscal policy or financial policies and procedures that nonprofits should put in to allow them to, to survive and thrive. 
and be able to maximize impact. And they can learn that from business. And business learns a lot from nonprofits as well. I mean, we do have the certified B Corp where nonprofit uh, founders and for-profit founders are saying, hey, you know, I want to I do good for my community or for the environment or for society. I, I want to have a different, I want ownership. I want to have shareholders, but I want to track my impact. And we, I just was listening to, to the radio or talking about some young finance journalists were saying, you know, they're millennials and they're like, I don't care about globalization. I care about impact. I'm okay with lower growth if people are getting jobs, if people can feed themselves. You know, we're coming into a different maybe era where making as much money as possible is not what people want. Maybe, you know, the next generation want. So you mentioned boards. Mm -hmm. A pretty common, I guess, entrepreneurial life cycle is found a company, company is successful, exit, not sure what to do, join boards of nonprofits. What should they know in advance of joining a nonprofit board? Okay. So yeah, I've, I've actually had a few retiring Silicon Valley executives who somehow got my number and say, what do I do in my second phase of my career? Let me talk first about kind of the structure of a, of a nonprofit. A nonprofit has an executive director or a CEO, which executes on the strategy of the, the nonprofit and works on the day-to-day. -day. And then, of course, there's this board that the executive director reports into and the, the, the board is responsible for uh, strategy. Being a member of a nonprofit board is a very enriching, very fulfilling, fulfilling experience. And, you know, I've been doing it for the last 15 years or so and sat on a lot of different boards. But I really think that you should go in eyes wide open into when you sit on a board. It should be a mission that you believe in. You should expect to open your wallet or at least fundraise for the nonprofit. You should also expect that thing, bad things happen in nonprofits and you should stick around. I have seen a lot of times where people will join a nonprofit board because they want to maybe network or they think, oh, I want to be part of this. And they realize maybe there's fraud or there's some, yeah, I mean, there's conflict in the operations. And then they're like, well, I'm not sure I'm really the right person. I'm like, but yeah, you know, boards in on the private world and the for-profit, you don't bail when the, <laughs> the company's going. That's when you get to work. And so I think if you're Thinking of joining a board, yes, do it. But realize that you've got to get to work. It's uh, a lot of people used to think that the reason you sit on a board is to rub elbows with, um, and it can help your business. It's not. It's not that effective, frankly, for for networking. Yeah, it's great to meet new friends, but you know there are probably not many galas anywhere where you can sit at these you know ten thousand dollar tables. You know they're few and probably in the performing arts, but it's really more about impact. 
and you're going to roll up your sleeves and it should be something you really care about. Going back to the idea that things are now changing. Mm -hmm. Millennials, maybe it's not all about profit. Maybe it's about an impact. Mm -hmm. Are there more and more opportunities or different ways for nonprofits to raise funding now that maybe weren't there before? Raise funding. Well, so let's talk about how a nonprofit comes to, you know, revenue. So there's the classic. So I, I don't know if I'm answering your question here correctly, but, you know, there's the classic individual donations. There is also uh, government grants. There's private foundations and public foundations. And, you know, we have Silicon Valley Community Foundation, which is the largest community foundation in the country um, that also grants out. You have earned revenue, that, which is like the Girl Scout model, you know, with cookies and the like. But nonprofits are borrowing money. They're taking out loans. They are issuing social impact bonds so that you, Sean, could say, I really care about mental health. I want to buy a bond from a mental health nonprofit I make a 2% return um, over three years, and they are able to build out a new facility. So I feel good. I get a stream of income, and this bond may even be guaranteed by a private foundation that really believes in this. And so they backstopping that nonprofit should they not be able to, so their credit rating goes down. So what happens when you have one nonprofit here, another nonprofit there? I mean, we're in Silicon Valley. Everyone, there's nonprofits everywhere. You know, one is we want to increase housing. And then another, uh, you know, we want to save newts and we don't want any more housing. Right. And they collide. I see. Yeah. So that goes to the issue. You can't be a purist at all things kind of impact. For example, we have a housing crisis here in the Bay Area and all over the country and in various pockets. And we need probably more denser housing and more affordable housing. But at the same time, that could impact the environment as well. And so there are a lot of kind of polemics out there about like, which is more important? saving the environment and ensuring that we have, you know, cleaner air and not congestion? Or do we have to compromise on that to pack more people into a town? You can't have it both ways. And it's the same kind of, you know, we've had a number of, of guests who are in the area of ESG, which Yes. For the audience, what's ESG? Just define Environmental, it. Environmental, social, and governance. And so governance being on how you run your company. Um, and I, I would argue that ESG is a financial term. So social impact I see as more all-encompassing. That could be volunteering. That could be donating. That could be social entrepreneurship. It could be investing or or lending, where ESG really is the belief that if I invest in companies or initiatives that 
protect the environment, address social injustice, and reward good governance, I will make money. But you will find that sometimes you can be way E, but not very S and not very G. So I think Tesla is a perfect example. Um, it's the epitome of E, low carbon footprint electric cars, but they have had hundreds of, you know, I think there's a class action lawsuit about racial problems and um, racism within their employees. So that would not be an S company. So you, so we'll, we'll often have clients who say, I look at the, the companies under the hood of this fund or whatnot, and I, I, don't, I don't like them. You know, I, I don't want to in, in invest in Microsoft. Well, if you want to perform, if you want performance, you have to have some of the high performing you know, companies in there. So, so that's why being social impact, being ESG is such a Faustian kind of deal. <laughs> you have to realize you, you can either do it for, for, for values and th- that you, I'm not going to invest in these or I'm going to invest in this company because I believe in it. And I don't care whether I'm going to make money or not, or, eh, you know, I'm going to be, you know, uh, balanced in my approach. And I recognize I'm going to invest in some companies that may not be, it's kind of goes back to our other conversation that you've got to make a compromise. You just hope you're not making too much of a sacrifice. Do you think all these new fintech companies out there? I mean, we're in a building of one more or less where, you know, automatic push this, automatic push that. How do you think that's impacting where investors put money when it comes to nonprofit or ESG, that, that, mm-hmm. that area? Talk do you more. think it's <laughs> persuading people in any way or making it more people aware of it? Or You're talking about like ESG and-, and With like- all these fintech apps where it's- quick investment and it's younger generation. Uh, and- okay. Well, I don't think of that as yet. So this goes to just whether people should be invested in market. I, I believe wholeheartedly that everybody should be invested in the market. When you look at, and this goes to an invest, individual level, if you look at- And this is not investment advice, right? No, I'm not giving investment advice. <laughs> no. I'm protected though. I've I've got my credentials. But anyway, um, if you look at research from you know Fidelity or Charles Schwab, and you look at um, what average that people have in retirement for every age, it's woefully inadequate. And we're probably on a you know a fast train to some pretty tough times. But you know these robo advisors and and platforms it's great that it's making people more comfortable my concern is that it's rewarding or encouraging people to speculate before they've even invested in the long term in their fight for their serious money so you hear about you know gen zers who are taking a couple thousand dollars and putting it in meme stocks or, you know, 
oh, you know, the democratization of private equity through SPACs. And those things scare me because, you know, I, I spent 20 years as a risk manager. And for me, if I don't understand, I, I don't know how people who don't have this background feel comfortable throwing their money where they barely know anything. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you kind of a little story. So, and this is completely unrelated to investing. So I was, went skiing with my daughter. She was 12 at the time. And she's really into like uh, snow parks. You know, she's typical Gen Z or young Gen Z. And I'm a really good skier. And she said to me, I said, how do you do a box slide? She goes, oh, it's really easy. I saw it on YouTube. All you do is go to the side. I'm like, go to the side. And I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, I'm really a good skier. I can get on that box that's really slippy and get advice from a 12-year-old who doesn't ski and saw this on YouTube. I can do this. It was the most painful fall I have ever had. <laughs> I mean, I had bruise on my face. You can see the video. I put it on our website, in fact, of what the dangers of using YouTube to, uh, for advice. And I've had, you know, prospects who say, you know, I follow this person or I saw this on YouTube. And my stomach sinks because I'm not sure what's this person's background. Are they, what's their deal that they, they're on? Are they here to educate you know, social impact so that people will invest in the right things? Or are they trying to sensationalize? And that, you know, that's what really scares me is that there is probably not enough balanced, good information that there are so much noise out there that people are going to throw away um, their retirement or the little money that they do have. Maya, let's move forward. Let's just talk right now. What are you working on? What is Fairlight? Okay. So Fairlight Advisors, we launched almost three years ago, and we were very intentional about giving investment advice, um, cash management, risk management, and fin financial consulting to small and mid-sized nonprofits. And so, you know, as I explained before, nonprofits, tip small nonprofits that may get that one-time donation from a long major donor who's been giving a little, you know, like a, a hundred bucks a month or even less than that. And then they pass and leave a couple million. We want to be there for those small nonprofits that wouldn't, you know, need the education, trying to educate them on, on capital markets, on the economy, and really holding their hand and understanding also their spending needs. Because um, nonprofits have to manage on very tight margins. As I said, all their profits need to go back into the, into the mission. And so how can they time, they have a multi-year grant from the city, how can they ensure that all of their require all the, the programs that they can fund, that they have enough money 
in that five-year period that this grant is for, that they can survive. And so that's the kind of advice we're doing. So some of the new things for us on the horizon is one thing that's very kind of hard for those of us who are in that nonprofit arena is it's very hard to find, at least for me, um, very hard to find other nonprofits or other professionals who serve nonprofits. We're very kind of niche small group. In fact, it's the sort of thing where people say, hey, do you know so? Yeah, I know that person. I mean, they were just not, not a very big group. There's a, a nonprofit, uh, it's kind of like a chamber of commerce of, of nonprofits in San Mateo County called Thrive Alliance. And I love the people there. And their executive director, Georgia Farouk, said to me, can you build a directory of professionals who want to work with nonprofits. And because she says, you know, I know an accountant, I might know an IT person who wants, but I don't even know if they're good or not. And I said, hold that thought. Let me build my business first and I'll come back to you. So today we're trying to build this directory for nonprofits to be able to find an attorney who focuses on on tax-exempt organizations an IT consultant who wants to build their their practice with more nonprofits, but also bring together people, whether it's a philanthropist or someone wants does sit on a board or wants to sit on a board, and maybe a public official or a concerned citizen to come together in a kind of a speed forum social hour to talk about issues in our community and do that so that they can meet like-minded people. Nonprofit people like to connect, um, but they're not typically networkers. You know, like we are always, <laughs> we're here to meet people, but we also have kind of a trying to find clients or connections. And, and you know, there is a social point to it. So we want to bring that community together of nonprofits who wouldn't typically be able, nonprofit and social impact individuals who wouldn't typically come together in a, in a, a kind of a, in a forum. And so just reaching out to the audience, is, is anyone having any ideas as she's speaking right now about potential people to connect and, and bring together later? Just throwing that out there. And, and Maya, before we wrap up, I just have one more question for you. Your father, your mother, both entrepreneurs. Actually, grandmother. Grandmother, okay. His mother. What was the best advice they ever gave you? And then after that, if anyone wants to find out more information about you and what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? Okay, I'll, the easy one, fairlightadvisor.com. That's our website and check that out. Advice from my grandmother, I wouldn't say. So I should say my grandmother ran a bookstore in San Leandro for decades. She was She was a badass. She was... Born in 1906, she graduated from on, with honors at the University of Oregon in the 20s, which is unusual. She didn't drive, and yet she would commute from Berkeley to San Leandro for the bookstore. And then when she was about 70, she decided that her bookstore was not in an ideal location. So she moved the bookstore on the bus a, a, a few boxes at a time. Now, my father was a renowned economist in the niche world of like energy economics. And he was 
he was quite a bit of a Cassandra. He passed away in 2016, but he made a lot of predictions that people thought were crazy and in fact were very uncomfortable with. So this this is kind of very pertinent to today, but in the late as you know kind of in the mid 70s to the to late late 70s and early 80s the price of gas was astronomical and i think it was like 1980 it was like 135 dollars a barrel and um, academics opec even imf uh, world bank they presume that oil would continue going up forever I mean, that was the belief. And my father said, nope, it's going to crash. And he was one of the only people, and it sounds kind of, you know, academic today, but no one believed him. He tried to get his friends to short oil futures. They would not do it. And I remember I must have been in about middle school and I knew, you know, you never know what your parents really do. You kind of find out later. But I, I knew at cocktail parties or family parties, everybody's, Arlen, what's the price of oil doing? And I don't just leave, you know, it's a boring conversation. But I asked him, why do people keep asking you that? And he said, well, because I think the price will go down and nobody believes that. So why? And he said, well, everybody thinks that oil is scarce. I believe oil is plentiful. I also believe that extraction and distribution of oil, the technology is getting better, so it'll be easier, and there will be alternative energy resources that will compete with oil. And this is like late 70s. And 1986, price of oil went down to about $35. A very good friend of my father's who is a very wealthy man. I said that the, the worst investment decision he made it was not listen to my dad. No one listened to my dad. And I think I've learned as an entrepreneur from him is that it doesn't, you have to be so convicted in what you believe. And it may not make you a lot of money, but it will allow you to sleep at night. And you may not make some friends and, and you know, you at least be respectful. You, as he used to tell me, you respect everyone as if they're at least as intelligent as you are, but still you speak your mind. And it's probably the one thing that I will take away that I will say what I think is right in a respectful way. And at least I will know that I am the person I want to be. And with that, we're going to end it there. Maya, I want to thank you for being a guest on the Silicon Valley podcast. For all our listeners, when you're listening to this on iTunes or any other podcast platform, please give us a five-star review. Leave a comment. It encourages us to create more content like this. For everyone out there, please connect with me on my social media uh, channels. It's Sean Flynn, S-H-A-W-N-F-L-Y-N-N-S-V for most of them, or just Sean Flynn on LinkedIn. And everyone out there, I'm not doing the podcast. I'm a mid-market investment banker, folks on mergers, acquisitions, growth capital, and secondaries. And for everyone out there that didn't know, Maya's actually my mentor. Uh, she'll take zero credit for it, but she is. No, I'm going to take a lot of credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I also want to thank 
Sapiens for allow, for hosting us and allowing this event to happen and our audience here today. And with that, Maya, thank you for being a guest on the Silicon Valley Podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.